Oh boy, Andy Weir and Rob Manning together this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. He is the author of The Martian, Artemis, and Project Hail Mary. The other guy is the Jet Propulsion Lab's chief engineer, a position he reached after establishing himself as the go-to guy for safely landing robots on Mars. Both have been heard here many times. I have dreamed of getting them together. Now, with just three episodes to go as host, Andy and Rob will join me for one of the most entertaining, provocative, funny, and enlightening conversations in our 20-year history. It's also one of the longest, but I don't think most of you will mind. And if you stay till the end, you'll hear Bruce Betts reacting well to the 20th anniversary gift I'll give him. Incoming host Sarah Alamed will be here in a minute to help us celebrate the very successful completion of the Artemis One mission. And as you'll hear me mention to Sarah, I spent a couple of delightful hours at Navy Base San Diego on board the USS Portland. In that great ship's cavernous, semi-submersible bay sat the Artemis I Orion capsule. The December 9 edition of the Downlink, our free weekly newsletter, came out too soon to capture the splashdown, but it does mark the 50th anniversary of the last time humans visited the moon. That was Apollo 17, of course, with Gene Cernan, Ron Evans, and geologist Harrison Schmidt on the crew. There's a great photo of these heroes at planetary.org slash downlink. The Planetary Society is also celebrating NASA's decision to launch the Near-Earth Object, or NEO-Surveyor, in 2028. And thank goodness, we'll finally have that dedicated infrared space telescope that will find many more asteroids that cross our path. Want to know what a big space rock can do? How about the one that may have generated a tsunami 80 stories high? This wave may have swept across Mars a few billion years ago. That story and more are waiting for you, along with the free digital edition of the Planetary Report, our quarterly magazine. Sarah, welcome back. I hope that I have just driven you green with envy, because I know you've already seen the selfie I took as I was standing just a few feet away from the Orion capsule recovered as part of the Artemis One mission. So cool. That is so cool. I'm so looking forward <laughs> to having adventures like that in the future. But I'm glad you got to do that. How how was it? Was it burnt to a crisp? <laughs> I, it was pretty toasty. It was uh, quite toasty, but in very good shape. Apparently, from from what I was told by the folks, the NASA folks who were there, and by the way, on next week's show, I'll feature some of the conversations I had, uh, including one with Shannon Walker, a very experienced astronaut who has ridden on Crew Dragon and Soyuz, and uh, we talked a little bit about how they compare with Orion. Anyway, she and some other folks that we will talk to next week, I'll tell you what, we'll post at least one of my photos of the capsule in the bay, the submersible bay on the USS Portland. Uh, but there'll be more stuff next week. I know you were excited. Absolutely. I mean, not only does this mark the end to the Artemis One mission, an amazingly successful end, but it also splashed down 50 years to the day since the Apollo 17 astronauts landed on the moon. So it all came around full circle and, and that's just <laughs> that's so cool and poetic. 
just cosmic uh, timing. I just, I love it. And it really was not intentional. This is just how the things came out, I believe. You have your own Artemis coverage coming up in, in what, your second show? Yeah, my second show on January 11th in 2023. I talk, spoke with Jeremy Graber, who's the assistant launch director at Kennedy Space Center. We had a whole wonderful conversation about the launch, what went on that night, but also about the passengers aboard uh, the Orion capsule, the three mannequins and the little plushy Snoopy. I wanted to know what was going to happen with that plushy Snoopy. So I got the details on that. <laughs> oh, that's great. All right. That, good reason, along with many others, to tune in. Because, of course, Sarah will in, what, three short weeks now with the January 4 show. That will be when she uh, takes over the microphone here on Planetary Radio. And your first guest on that first show, I hear he's he's sometimes okay. <laughs> sometimes okay. Well, of course, you are my first guest, Matt. I needed to talk to you about your experience on Planetary Radio, and thank you for everything you've done over these years. So additionally, thank you for being my first guest. <laughs> you are very welcome, and thank you for that honor. And you'll be back next week for another one of these brief uh, segments up front. And then on my very last program, when we will uh, continue the tradition of talking with uh, Planetary Society colleagues, a little review of uh, the year 2022 in space. It has been quite a year, and Sarah will be part of that panel. So uh, I'll talk to you then as well. Gosh, what a year. There's so much to go over. It was really exciting. You bet. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks so much, Matt. I could easily take 10 minutes telling you about my guests, and we'd cover just their highlights. But they can speak for themselves, and they do so at length in the glorious conversation you're about to hear. You won't soon forget it if you enjoy it half as much as I did. Here are Rob Manning and Andy Weir. I cannot tell you how much I have been looking forward to this with some trepidation because I didn't want to screw it up because I knew how great it could be. Just as we've been working to get Rob's mic working, I've been reassured because, Andy, you've been so great with your insults and Rob's technical ability. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the guy Welcome. can land things on Mars, cannot get his microphone working. No, no, no. I'm very specialized. <laughs> No, 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 no. I think what they were telling you at the school district was that you're special. <laughs> you're a systems engineer, Rob. You're a system. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I delegate to important people with technical He's skills. He's a hardware like, guy. I'm like a software Andy. guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Andy. Andy, could you explain this method call to this microphone? I just don't get it. Could <laughs> yeah. I, be before you get into that, could I introduce the two of you? Because, I mean, there are going to be a lot of firsts in this planetary radio. I don't know if it's a first for me to introduce somebody during the interview, but I generally don't. Rob Manning came to JPL from Caltech as a draftsman on the Galileo-Jupiter mission. Yes. By the early 1990s, he was chief engineer for Mars Pathfinder, the brilliantly successful mission that put us back on the road to Mars and included that cute little Sojourner rover that will someday become Mark the Martian Watney's pet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and since then, it has been Mars all the way down, though he is now also the lab's overall chief engineer. So uh, welcome, Rob. Thank you, Matt. You're welcome. Andy Weir is the author of not one, but two number one New York Times bestselling novels, The Martian, and his most recent book, Project Hail Mary, which I've described as having an average of one great laugh and one fascinating innovation on every page. 
In between these, oh, look at that. Rob is now promoting the book. <laughs> I could get my copy. In between these, you can have some great fun on the moon with Artemis. I also recommend Cheshire Crossing, his wonderful feisty graphic novel created with artist Sarah Anderson that brings together three of the greatest young female heroines of all time, Alice Wonderland Liddell, and I thank you for making her hair black as it actually was, Wendy Darling and Dorothy Gale. I uh, highly recommend it. I, I read it just a, just a couple of weeks ago. Welcome, guys. Welcome again. Hi. Thanks. It's, Hi. it's great to be here. It's On a this, great pleasure your, for me, too. Your final Planetary Radio with guests. That's with, right. With, with guests. external guests. Absolutely When did you right. start? Like, what year? It's uh, 20 years ago. 20, 20 years ago. So in the time that Planetary Radio has been going, we lost a planet. We did. <laughs> it wasn't I, my fault. I <laughs> hold you responsible. When you started Planetary Radio, there were nine planets. Now there are eight. And the, yeah, this is supposed to be the planetary society. You know, you're supposed to promote planets, not have them you're, vanish. Oh, man. Yeah, in fact, not only that, they're big on planetary defense. Right. I know. I, that's I know. a big thing. Planetary defense. Yeah. They didn't defend Pluto. Maybe Pluto was a threat. My parents' generation, they grew up being taught that Pluto was a planet, right? So I saw a great picture, it just Pluto, the planet, and a little talk bubble. It says, I was big enough for your mom. <laughs> I guess we can run that on NPR. Uh, um, um, gentlemen, I'm, I'm going to ask you to, the reason I did your intros live is that, as I warned you, I'm going to ask you to continue those introductions of each other, something else I've never done. Rob... Would you please tell us about uh, Andy Weir? Okay. Well, Andy Weir, he's he's this software guy from the Central California area, <laughs> and uh, and he had this apparently he had this idea of writing this this book about Mars, but he wasn't that confident in himself, so he had to kind of do it online. He had a bunch of people, and I really wish I'd been one of those people to uh, comment on his his was it weekly posts that you put out of your of your of your book. Monthly, a monthly chapter book, a month, roughly chapter a yeah. month, and then people commented, and you went back and read lines. Like, you know, what kind of confidence is that? You know, the other hand, <laughs> you know, I I, I kind of count on other people to help me out too. <laughs> and they, I read the whole thing. Is that was it? So someone like Penguin Books picks you up or something like that? Penguin Random House, the imprint House. at the time was called Crown Publishing. They're gone now, and they've become Ballantine. I should mention that you guys know each other. That's one of the reasons I wanted to bring you together. And Rob, I wish I had recorded the wonderful things that you said about Andy when <laughs> I just told you that I wanted to get the two of you together, because I don't know if you're willing to repeat them now, but you, you seem to have a pretty high opinion of him. Uh, well, you know, it, what I really, yeah, I wish he wasn't here to listen to this. I mean, this is really embarrassing. Um, <laughs> I thought that you know, was it. You know, I think, it, and it goes back to, you know, how you see the world. Right, and there's a there's a sense of what's what's really magical about engineering or about making things is that we live in a in a physical world that we can pull things together and pull ideas together, and Annie loves integrating that component in with humanity because it's important to remember that we're also physical beings that interact with this world. You know, that's the magic of being alive, and Annie, you you're able to pull in science and engineering in an actualization sense that, that with enough, with a closeness to the, the actual universe that we live in, 
that really allows for that interaction to feel real and feel dramatic. And it, by the way, now that's how my world feels like, you know, even though how can it, it's amazing how much time we spend in PowerPoint space uh, <laughs> staring at uh, the universe of bullets and block diagrams. And things like, no, but, but so you have sometimes pulled yourself out of that and look at the reality. And what's, what's so cool about Dandy's books, and I think a lot what we do too, is we, we try to explore ideas and we build up complicated systems to explore our universe, not for the sake of going out there, not for the just the sake of looking, but to actually change what's in our brains. And that's what Andy does to the reader. Aw, thanks so much. It's really nice. Your turn, Andy. Well, uh, we're all really proud of Rob. He hasn't had any heroin in six months. <laughs> And that's very good. I mean, that's that's <laughs> verifiably true. It's Rob, verifiably can you true. confirm in I the past confirm. six months have you had any I, heroin? I, I have had very, very, almost oh, virtually zero heroin. Zero heroin in yeah. the last six months, and we're all just really, yeah. really proud of that. And also, I just want to point out that he was not convicted of murder. Not I once. Just, <laughs> not, not even close. Not not even. once. He yeah. did not get convicted. No, what they, you know what they say it takes it takes what twenty years to be an excellent musician it takes you know what in your case about a, six months to be a good writer, um, but you know all it takes, <laughs> but all it takes is one time to kill somebody and then and then you know, all of a sudden you're, you're a murderer. Just, there, yeah, I think um, you both missed your callings. Apparently, <laughs> so. seriously, it's 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 really amazing the stuff that Rob has done and got to be in charge of and and be a part of and and it's it's a very I'm very envious. When I first wrote The Martian, of course, I I, I did it as he described. I, I posted it a chapter at a time to my website. I had no contacts. I didn't know anyone at NASA or JPL or anything like that. And then it started to gain popularity. And then I had people like Rob contacting me. He's like, hey, I'm Rob Manning. I, I land stuff on Mars. I want to tell you that this is really neat. And I'm like, wait, wait, go back. <laughs> wait, stop. I think I remember this is... Uh, more about NASA than JPL, but uh, I remember one time it was like Christmas time, and on ISS they had to do a pseudo emergency spacewalk to fix a water leak outside the station, and it was on like Christmas Eve or Christmas Day or yeah. whatever. So I was at my mom's, and I was just like hanging out, kind of bored, and reading my email, and I got email from people at Mission Control for the station saying like, "Hey." We're all just sitting here waiting for the for the emergency spacewalk to work to start. We weren't really expecting to have to have a full staff here, so we're kind of bored. Just thought we'd email you and say we liked the Martian. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I can honestly say I didn't expect a email from Mission Control. Um, yeah. Uh, so maybe Rob can speak to this too. My 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 favorite bit of feedback that I've gotten from the space community in general. Once I got to meet all the all the movers and shakers and stuff like that, you know. Everyone at JPL John, and at Johnson Space Center and all the way up to the, the D.C. office of NASA and everything like that. You mean when they got to meet you? When they got to meet me, yes, yeah. when they were so privileged. <laughs> yeah, when I got to meet all these people and do all these tours and look at all this awesome stuff, the one thing everyone agreed on was that the least accurate part of the Martian is the high degree of cooperation shown between NASA and JPL. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. Rob, yeah, you, I didn't you, want... you need... 
I, I like that. I like that fiction. I like that fiction. It was great. <laughs> yeah. Um, gentlemen, uh, I, we could just keep jawboning like this for the next hour or two. <laughs> but let me get into some questions that, uh, at least initially, and I warned you there, I think, I hope there's a method to my badness, but some questions up front that you've been asked 6.02 times 10 to the 23rd times. What turned the two of you into space nerds, space science and engineering nerds, Rob? Okay, well, I grew up in the, for the most part, in the Puget Sound, in the around in the islands, Puget Sound, far away from being technical. I, you know, the first time I met a real engineer was not until many, many years later. In fact, I thought engineers drove trains. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. I don't know, that's oh, when um, you were so, born, that's what they did. It's what they did. <laughs> I mean, back when you were born, that's what engineer meant. <laughs> So I was reading National Geographic magazine and Ocular Mechanics, and we, those are the two main sources of technical knowledge that I gained, as well as there's a wonderful series, Time Life series of hardback books that were very popular back then. And I and I collected all forty of them, and there were great pictures and stories in there about about science and engineering, life, biology, all sorts of things. Um, but the one I liked best was it was called mechanistically called man in space um there's people in space and 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 i had all these pictures of you know astronauts learning how to how, how to operate a spacesuit and i just can these people are really going of course they had these pictures chelsea bonestell's paintings from uh from the colliers magazines were still in there with as well as vera von Braun's bronze images of what mars exploration might look like you know spinning space stations even before 2009 space odyssey came out which by the way blew my socks off when it came out um, as a kid, um, it, and I just, I, I just found that the idea of inventing things. I, I wanted to be an inventor, and I think a space inventor. I was even okay about being a, a construction worker in a space station. I thought that might be kind of fun. So I settle for such a lowly position. Oh man, would I ever? <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, the whole thing that you could buy these Rebel models of of the Mercury and and Gemini, uh, and then when Apollo, I was. Just following Apollo. So anyway, the long story short, I was growing up right in the era of human space exploration and space exploration in general. Mariner spacecraft was sent out, fly past Venus and Mars and eventually Mercury. I mean, we're just we're just like, oh my gosh, these little dots in the sky are becoming real. And of course, in all these books about science, these pictures we had of, of Jupiter and Saturn, and all, you know, we had a little tiny, there were like blurry little circles with stripes and then a ring around it and that was it it says what is it we don't very cool what a great time to grow up can you see below my right shoulder down in that bookcase that's the oh, life science it. library there it is you got it right there man, <laughs> man in space that was my favorite one in the series too one of the proudest moments of my life as a kid i found a mistake and i sent it into time life and they sent me back a thank you note with a little paste-in caption to correct the, the caption that was incorrect oh. on one of the illustrations. Made my made my year, probably made my life. <laughs> Andy, what were your influences? I mean, what, what turned you into a nerd? Well, I think uh, genetics, largely. Um, <laughs> my father was, I mean, both my parents are still alive, so when I speak in the past tense, I'm meaning that they're now retired. But my father was a, um, a, a linear accelerator physicist, Wow. And and so he made he made electrons go really fast and hit stuff. My mother was an electrical engineer, 
so my dad, he's all about the physics and science and stuff like that. My mom was just doing it for the paycheck. She, she didn't have a lot of passion about it. She was good at it, but she was doing it just to, you know, to make the money. What my mom really liked is reading. So that combination kind of makes me hopelessly fall into the science fiction setting. Another thing is my father had never threw away a book in his life so far, I don't think. And he has this giant bookshelf just full of every science fiction book he has ever owned, dating all the way back to his own childhood. So I grew up reading like the uh, juveniles science fiction books from the 1950s and 60s and stuff. Not reprints, like the original ones. So they have sort of a smell to them. The pages are yellowed a bit. And because the intended audience are like 15 and 14-year-old boys, they have ads for cigarettes at the midpoint. (laughs) Seriously. They'll be like, you'll be reading along just ordinary page, and then there'll be a glossy page that's an ad for like Kent cigarettes, Kent. and then you just continue. <laughs> Keep talking, guys. You're I'm going to do something what, else I've never done. Yeah. You just carry on the show. We okay. hate dead air. I'll be right okay. back. So, well, so, Andy, did you did you read R.C. Clark and uh, Asimov oh, yeah. and Heinlein? Clark, uh, yeah. Asimov, Clark, and Heinlein are my holy trinity. Yeah, yeah. So they're they're the ones I really grew up reading. Okay, here we have Starman Jones. Robert I've, I've read that. Yeah, remember that original edition. Yeah, that's it. fantastic. I found it. I, at I a, get at them a mixed sale. up because he has a few of them. Uh, is that the one where he's basically in like the uh, like space kind of foreign legion equivalent? Is that Starman well, he Jones? Beca- he becomes a navigator. Oh, okay, on a trading vessel where they speak yeah. Finnish. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, no, I, I seriously, like I remember that. It was, I think it you're was, right. Yeah, and there's you think it's going to be the the woman that he ends up with, and she doesn't anyway. It's it's pretty good. It's great stuff. There's that one, That's and Heinlein. then there's uh, there's the one. I'm confusing it with a different Heinlein one, where it's kind of like a soldier uh, space starship troopers. Starship troopers. That is maybe the one I'm thinking of. Although I thought my, the one I was thinking of was more obscure, but maybe it is that one. But then there's also Have Spacesuit Will Travel. Which oh, I that's really what like. got me into yeah. it. That was my first Heinlein story. Rob, re- re- yeah, you're nodding a lot, Rob. Were you also a fan of these golden oh, era yeah. guys? All, yeah, all these guys. And I, I just, it was really got me into reading. I mean, it was the kind of thing where you, where you just, especially, I love the I love the little, the small little stories too, where you could just sort of like sneak off uh, during a little break in school and just hide your, yeah. hide your book in the backpack again and start over again. Well, you're talking about Rob. I did the exact same thing. I would sneak, I would have a Heinlein book or Clark or Asimov or whatever in my backpack at school and I'd sneak up and read it. And the the book Red Planet by Heinlein oh, yeah. has book. the distinction of being the first time I ever read a book start to finish in a single day. Like, oh, wow. You know, and so I was a teenager. I was in school. It was a school day. But all of my classes ended up having like a lot of boring stuff going on. So I was just like in the back, like, reading my book and yeah if only that had been the real mars uh we could you know you have to it gets chilly at night but you can still wander around you can you can wander <laughs> around you ice skate across the great blank plains of mars yeah yeah, yeah. i i you know think about these the universes they, they, they took you from i mean I, my world was i didn't have technical or college educated uh parents or environment so these places just feel like I, I really was pulling to a different world. I mean, really, and and their imaginations that they had, especially back then, was because they were inventing stuff, you know, way ahead of the time. And we've we've seen so much of science fiction authors' of visions come true, and it's partly because they inspired engineers, right? 
to actually yeah. to do the very thing that they've suggested. I just find it amazing how much an innovation and imagination uh, and, and curiosity these people had to make these books happen. I think that people give science fiction authors a little too much credit. They often say like, I'll say something like, yeah, I'm a science fiction author, but it's easy to be a science fiction author. You just come up with pie in the sky ideas and then pretend they work. It's at, yeah. it's engineers who actually make interesting things happen. And and then inevitably, I you know, someone will say, yeah, but it's science fiction guys who come up with these ideas and inspire the engineers to which I say, no, it's not. I guarantee you there's nothing that a sci-fi author came up with that an engineer didn't already come up with. I, I respectfully disagree with you because <laughs> you prove, as I said, on almost every page of your books that you do come up with stuff which apparently is workable and I don't think anybody has thought of because nobody's so. put a human being in that situation before. I, I appreciate the compliment and I won't... I won't spend too much time trying to fend off praise, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I will say that like absolutely everything in the mission profile of like the Ares missions in the Martian has been thought of. It's basically a variant of Mars Direct that I updated for modern technology because Mars Direct was invented in like the 80s. And right. when I wrote the Martian, we had ion propulsion and I think that'll be a big part of it. And so I updated things. But Absolutely everything related to the mission profile in The Martian is stuff many, many people have already thought of. Well, I, 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 but I, th but I think it's really, and that, that's true with almost all of engineering too, right? I mean, I, right, I, yeah. I, I, I hate to say it. So there's, when we see these things that, that we've done as engineers, we're really putting together this huge, we're staying on the shoulders of giants is what we are. And, you know, and yes, I, Andy, I'm sure you're right that much of their ideas are coming from other things I've read, tech, other technologists and futurists and other people who do, who, who look at the, what's the trends in technology and things like that. But, you know, ultimately it's putting them all together and integrating into a storyline. That's what I do. I integrate this, I mean, all these different pieces into a story that hangs together and doesn't violate the laws of physics, which is my only other constraint. Oh, and budgets and schedules. Don't forget those. Yeah, um, there's, there's that. Uh, but I do think that it's very analogous. And so innovation is often not so much magical single idea, but the conglomeration of integrating these ideas into a whole. And so you shouldn't under underestimate that. I mean, just little things. And, you know, the whole idea is you know, using hydrazine drip, right, to get to get water, you know. Um, uh, you know, it's people like my, my group, we, we go like, we wear skate suits. We try to stay away from that um, yeah. And so yeah. our, our, so, but the other hand is, well, wait a minute now. Turns out if you're careful, it's okay. You just have to be very careful, really and, careful. <laughs> you know, it's funny about, about that specific scene in the Martian or in the, in the book. Anyway, somebody worked out, you know, and sent it to me, said like, okay, well, I had given enough information that they could work this out. They knew the volume of the hab from other things that I told. They knew how much hydrogen, hydrazine he reduced and over what time period he did it all and stuff like that. Okay, based on that information, the temperature of the hab would have gone up to about 350 degrees Celsius. <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> and so they emailed me that. And I'm like, okay, listen here, you little <laughs> <laughs> But no, I said, hey, that's pretty cool. Uh, good point. Uh, wish you'd been around when I was doing the, uh, you know, everybody can uh, comment and I can make changes. This was long after the book was in print. But I said, like, you know, to him, I said, well, 
off camera, of course, Mark, I mean, the Aries site, the base was expending a lot of energy to keep the, uh, stay warm, warm. So it would just not have to expend that energy. And, but still, you know, bite me. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, you, you you guys are, you guys are demonstrating exactly (laughs) why I wanted to talk to you about the topic I want to move to now. And and why I thought it would be so fun to bring you together. Well, that's a lie. I just wanted to get the two of you together <laughs> in, in a conversation that I could be part of, our witness at least. Don't tell my other guests on the other 1,105 shows that we've now completed. <laughs> uh, but you two are, are, first of all, among the most fun, for sure. But you are absolutely the only two that I think I have done actual onstage stand-up shtick with, because I've right. done that with, oh, right. with both of yeah, you. Yeah. But what dis- really distinguishes you, I propose, and I think you've demonst- you provided proof of this, is the, the vast amount of creative spirit that you bring to your work. And I'm betting that either of you could write a book about this, and probably should, uh, but it's the main thing that I want to talk to you about today. I mean, do you, do you see yourselves as being extraordinarily creative or even, you know, slightly above uh, the norm, uh, Rob? No, not even close. <laughs> um, no. Uh, I, well, we're, I, we're I, done. I, well, All right, we next question. So, but, 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 because, so I think part of it, you have to understand, you know, it's not just the word creative. You could be creative in so many different ways. I actually, I, I paint abstract paintings for fun with my wife. We, we do, and I, and I struggle with, being, you know, trying to be creative. I played, I'm a jazz combo player. I try to be creative there in that world. But I'm realizing the part that makes creativity work in some sense is the same thing that makes complex systems work within the laws of physics. In some sense, it's it's not, because anybody can throw anything together on, you know, you can throw paint on a piece of paper. You could you could dissolve and you can fun and you can have a lot of fun with that. There's no doubt about it. I wouldn't wouldn't stop anyone from doing anything. But but a lot of a lot of the most effective creativity, the one that that catches people's attention, are the ones that seem to work. They hold together in some context under constraints, where it, it, people find solutions to an idea that allow you to either ask new questions or 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 solve problems for for you. So. Um, I think artists do that, musicians do that. When you, when you try to, when you try to a um, a musical phrase, build up on tension, you're kind of reaching a m- musical climax, and then you resolve it, come back, come back to it. And you've actually taken the listener on a journey. And I think, I, I think if you think about what we try to do when we build complex systems, is that we are, you know, we have this journey in mind, a, a ver- an actual journey of trying to make something <laughs> happen. But, but what we're trying to do is we're trying to find that space, trying to. Fly, you know, I use the mental analogy of Han Solo and Luke Skywalker with the Millennial, Millennium Falcon flying through the asteroid field and t- dodging. You know, and in some sense, our world of solutions is really about finding those sweet spots and flying through those cracks. And I think huh. that's and that's why I'm impressed with what Andy does is that he he actually tries to apply terrestrial humanistic physical constraints on the characters. Which gives them gives people a place to realize that these are real limits and challenges. Is trying to how do you find a sweet spot for solving your problems in life? I mean, because all of us as human beings, we're constantly surfing 
trying to find solutions in our own lives for everything we do. They, it, just waking up in the morning, remembering to pay your traffic ticket or, you know, just 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 you know, paying your bills, just living your life is, is a series of, uh, of, I, I of mental obstacles. ticket right here. Right here. <laughs> Thank you. I got yes. caught speeding yesterday. Well, Andy's. Well, look at this. They both have traffic tickets. I, I, I feel left out. I don't have one to hold on. Not, not only do I have a traffic ticket, we both have traffic tickets just right here on our desk. In front of it. Yes. <laughs> to remind us to deal with them. Yeah. So that's why these things are so analogous to the living the life. Of, I think that's why people find what we're doing uh, as engineers intriguing, even though it's really about science, right? It's about the overcoming obstacles and finding solutions and resolving the tension to a musical climax from the musical climax to it to an ending. And I think I think that that part of it is I think so essential to uh, is representative in the work that I do and the work that Andy does. Andy, does that does that resonate with you? But also, do you think of yourself as a particularly creative, innovative person? Well, it's hard for me to say nice things about myself, but yes, I do think of myself as being pretty creative. I I I, I don't always succeed in what I'm trying to create, but I am creative. I like making things. The books that I write are the kind of like thought experiment versions of of making things. But also my hobby is just kind of being a maker. Like I like to make gizmos and devices and stuff. I've been working on a purely physical computer for calculating the day of the week for any given date. So you just turn dials to set a date and it will move gears and stuff around and output the day of the week that that was. We, we have to hear cool. more about this someday, Dr. Babbage. Yeah, right. <laughs> I love because it. There is no other possible way of finding that information out. So, so I, and I got to tell you, like I have spent literally two years developing different. I'm on my like tenth revision of this thing, and, and none of the previous ones have worked to my satisfaction. So, yeah, maybe maybe this time. But uh, it's always like back to the drawing board redesign. I I love to make things. Yeah. Um. And as for stories, one thing I found is that if I make a setup if i make a system where interesting stuff happens then the story comes along pretty easily like i'm like okay my particular approach is to get real technical get real detailed much further yeah much more detailed even than shows up in my books like you see like maybe 10 to 20 percent of the research that i've done makes it into the book at all but i go way the hell down the rabbit hole so i'm like okay i came up with a how to do a Mars mission. And then I say, like, here's an event that strands a guy. Well, now I I know all the details of the Mars mission. So how can he make use of these things to survive? How do they end up saving? Yada, yada, yada. The story kind of evolves naturally once you create the world in which it takes place. Same with Project Hail Mary. It was a really interesting problem that humanity is faced with. And the problem itself provides the tools for a solution and then we go from there and basically i write very well trodden science fiction concepts like my three books are about a guy who's stranded on a planet uh, a woman living on his city on the moon and a guy trying to save earth from an existential threat and that's the first contact story the third one right so all these things have been done over and over again by science fiction authors everywhere so I'm almost never coming up with a totally new concept. What I'm doing is taking 
well-worn science fiction concepts and doing it my way. And my way is like, all right, let's delve into the science of this. I've been, uh, you know, I have put thought into a time travel story, right? I spent like a month trying to work out the physics to make sure that momentum and energy are conserved when you travel in time. It gets very difficult. And I'm like, okay, well, that, that be, that's a problem because right away, my, my little, my little physics obsessed brain goes like, if you can ever cause a failure in conservation of energy or momentum, either one, you can make a perpetual motion device. Like ah, period. Sure. Yeah. Guaranteed. Yeah, yeah. If you give me any system at all that doesn't conserve momentum and energy, then I can give you a perpetual motion device. <laughs> like I can give you free energy. I get mail from these guys now and then. Yeah. Free energy guys? <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. yeah, that's why that's why when everybody was excited about the EM drive, I was like, I don't know what's going on, but I know it doesn't work. Because <laughs> right. if you Third. give me an EM drive, I will give you infinite energy. Because eventually the energy that you're putting because the EM drive allegedly creates propellantless propulsion based on a constant energy input. So eventually its kinetic energy will be greater than <laughs> the energy being put into it. So but Andy, what you're that you're doing exactly what we do in the sense that you're yeah. trying to live with a bunch of constraints and you're trying to put together into a puzzle to see if you can get to some goal, some outcome, some sort of vision. Now, the vision is where the creativity really lives, right? But then when you put all these obstacles intentionally, in your case, intentionally in your wing, i.e., well, I want to follow laws of physics. You don't have to do that as an author, but you want to because that's part I of to. who you are. Right. And, and actually, that makes it more fun because in some sense, those are the cool obstacles that you're trying to find. That's exactly the world I live in. And why I say I'm not creative, I, I mean, I don't necessarily, I'm not creative at any step. It's really about dodging, you know, it's like living, like, like a painter that solving the problems. Right. So, so it's like a painter who spends half their time trying to make themselves a new color the, with new dyes, trying, trying to make that color that they just wanted, they needed for that particular application with the right color spectrum. And so, so a good, I mean, it's the same idea. An example of problem solving creativity I always like to use is the cotton gin. Um, yeah. The cotton gin is an incredibly, it's very straightforward. It was so straightforward, in fact, that the guy who invented it barely made any money at all because everyone could just make their own hmm. from stuff lying around their barns. And But it's something nobody had thought of until somebody did. And it's this very creative solution to a, a real problem that people were having at the time. I don't want to go too deep into the history of it or describe it. But if anybody's interested who's listening, just look up Cotton Gin and you'll see an yeah. incredibly simple solution to a problem that had been plaguing the whole cotton industry. So you were saying, Rob, about um, keeping true to the physics being my personal approach. It is. But also one thing I've found is that the physics of the universe that we live in are very, very good at being internally consistent. It's a good thing. Yeah. And so if I stick with real physics then my then my fictional technology won't run into problems later. I just yeah. have to keep, I just have to run the physics forward. You know, so as I'm writing, I come up with, oh, what if what if he does this? Then what would that thing do? And I'm like, well, I've st I've kept within the realm of real physics. So what would real physics do? I'm perfectly happy. I can I can enjoy soft sci-fi, Star Trek, Star Wars. Although I would categorize Star Wars as technically fantasy, just with a sci-fi veneer, 
And I also like fantasy, so it's all good. I'm not I'm not dissing any of these properties. But like when I watch Star Trek and I see the transporter, I have a lot of questions. I, I have so many questions. I, I'm like transporter technology should be the exact center of all development from that point on. Oh, you can beam that you can just send matter as energy beams to other places at presumably the speed of light ish. Okay. Well, what what (laughs) and not only that but it's like you're taking something apart and it stays in like a pattern buffer for a while then you put it out couldn't you just like solve anything and you're basically stopping time for that thing it's like oh you know rob is sick beam him into a pattern buffer adjust it so he's not sick (laughs) and duplicating stuff and and just like i have so many questions and star trek is like yeah the answer to those is shut up (laughs) <laughs> and and that's fine because it's yeah. fiction you can do that but, but yet it's inspired people i mean I, I, there's some fascinating quantum teleportation articles and discussions about transportation through a wormhole as is recently tested caltech with caltech researchers here recently um transporting a single qubit through a um kind of a makeshift one-dimensional wormhole but those ideas in some sense inspire those people we think those things they see if they can keep pushing keep asking the question whether it's possible um, but you're right. I mean, these these guys they needed a mechanism, and and I know that yeah. I mean, if you read the the making of Star Trek, they do talk about it's like we need a way to get there. Hurry, because this is going to take for it. The show is only yeah. Roddenberry just didn't away. he didn't want to have to to subject people to shuttle missions to exactly. get them down take, to the surface of the planet yeah. and yeah. move the story. Yeah, and they didn't have the budget. They didn't have yeah. the budget to film ships <laughs> landing and taking off all the time. So they did the transporter, which is great. You know that that's that's awesome. Yeah. Well, one thing I found as a science fiction nerd and and with a lot of science fiction nerd friends is that every discussion of how a transporter works eventually devolves into a philosophical discussion of what is the human soul. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's only yeah. a matter of time before you get from one to the other. <laughs> so there's been some great science fiction st- uh, writing about exactly that topic. I don't know about you, but I want to stretch my legs. I'll be back with Rob and Andy right after this message from the boss. Hi, everybody. Bill Nye here, CEO of the Planetary Society. Everything we do, from advocacy for missions that matter, to funding new technology, to grants for asteroid hunters, and sharing the wonder of space exploration with the world, only happens thanks to friends like you who share our passion for space. When you invest in the Planetary Fund today, a generous member will match your donation up to $100,000. Every dollar you give will go twice as far as we explore the worlds of our solar system and beyond, defend Earth from the impact of an asteroid or comet, and find life beyond Earth by making the search for life a space exploration priority. With you by our side, we'll continue to advocate for missions that matter for years to come. How about powering our work in 2023? Please donate today. Visit planetary.org slash planetary fund. Thank you for your generous support and happy new year. Rob, the other thing that struck me about what you were talking about, uh, whether it was music or art or story writing or engineering with a goal in mind of the journey is, is the story element in that building to yeah. a climax. 
which certainly Andy has demonstrated he's very capable of uh, of taking us along on that ride. Um, that also intrigues me that finding this element of story across all these different disciplines and 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 life activities. It is. It's, when we do it. It's not that like, we set ourselves out to create those things. It's just that storytelling is what life really is. You know, we're experiencing the stories once ourselves. I mean. I, I look back in the, the period of since the early 90s when I really got involved in the Mars exploration site, I look back at that journey and it's, it boggles my mind. I mean, all the things that we've, the things, things that happened, things that worked, things that didn't work, actual how failures inspired new inventions, new ideas. If Mars Polar Lander hadn't vanished, still missing in action, folks, and can find it. I, 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 <laughs> Oh, hang on. Well, wait, hang on. <laughs> Did you look wow, behind the refrigerator? Yeah, right, right. I, I know. This is it? Illinois, not Mars. You're terrible at this. <laughs> I <know>. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and so I, 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 I really feel that that this that the story that what's happened has been just. I mean, for example, I was going to say we were we wouldn't have invented uh, either Spear and Opportunity or the Sky Crane maneuver, the Sense State, and without that that failure, which inspired us to actually figure out what. Think out of the box and you know, start turning things upside down. Still to this day, I believe the Sky Crane maneuver was invented by Wiley Coyote. <laughs> and and you guys just rolled with it. I, I guess it, it's, it should have said acne I, on this side. I look at that and I'm like, what complete idiot. Oh, wait. No, it was you, wasn't it? Yes, no, it was. But uh, jokes aside, I do remember uh, watching the Pathfinder landing. Uh, it was on the 4th of July, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah. It was the 4th of July and my friend, my nerd. So this is the type of friends I have. We all got together so we could watch the Pathfinder landing on TV. Like we all had like a party. My friend made a joke that to this day we still use. It's like, unfortunately, um, the humans didn't know that the tetrahedron is the official symbol for we declare war on your planet. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's good. That's very good. Oh, yeah, yeah. Then there was a, a great article that came out. It was making the rounds. This was before people really had emails. So it was making the rounds as Xerox copies and stuff like that. But it was like, the Martian Air Force says that the UFO sightings in the Chrissy Planitia area were just swamp gas. <laughs> There's nothing to see. I will tell you a great David Brin, very short story uh, in which uh, Lander comes down on Mars, lands on the son of the Martian ruler, who then swears vengeance against all Earthlings, but especially the Planetary Society, because he finds he finds a, a DVD or a CD on this that is from the Planetary Society. Oh, they're the ones who killed my son, and so he comes to Earth and he starts with killing Carl Sagan, uh, but and then goes from there. <laughs> Sorry, Bring I've told that a story before. Sense of humor. Oh, oh yeah, no, I had this idea. For once for there being like native Martians, you know, soft sci-fi story, native Martians, and they find the Viking lander. And so they're like, well, this is alien technology. We should take this apart. And they're like, we don't know what this is, but uh, what is it? They they decided it comes from the uh, hat snake cup people. And they just <laughs> always call it the hat snake cup people. These people like hats, snakes, and cups. I decided they read right to left and if you look at USA, 
It looks like a hat, a snake, and a cup. Oh. Yeah. And so they just call they call they call these aliens the hat snake cup snake. people. That and would be NASA. And, de- <laughs> and develop an entire uh, uh, culture uh, around. Well, they those don't know anything things. about it. They like yeah. these people like these uh, five pointed stars. They got like fifty of them on this thing, <laughs> and then there's like a bunch of stripes. We don't know what the heraldry of the hat snake cup people is all about. <laughs> if they look close, I'm just say if they look closely at Mars Pathfinder, they will find a signature chip that we reduced all this all these signatures and stuff from kids and all over into a single a piece of silicon. And of course they can go, they'll find Homer Simpson, who is obviously the one in charge <laughs> on earth. The ideal human. Well, to be fair, I, I did come up with this idea long enough ago that there, there was no Pathfinder yet. It was just the only, it, there was like some Russian debris and the two Viking landers were the only human things you'd find on Mars. Gentlemen, you are amply demonstrating once again uh, that this was the right topic to bring up with you guys. Can can you teach, Rob? Can you teach creativity? Can you teach innovation, both to individuals? And, you know, how do you get teams to work creatively? It's tough enough just to get them, keep them all cohesive, keep them all talking to each other. Rob, let's talk about your favorite topic, project and people management. <laughs> let's get <laughs> deep into that bullet point space that you like to yeah. spend so let's, much time in. Exactly. Maybe we could talk about budgeting after this one, Matt. Yeah, that why not? Really That's exciting. <laughs> I think I'll wait for the movie. But yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it, there's a lot of creativity in budgeting. <laughs> there is. I, I think you can't, I don't think you can teach creativity itself. But you can create an environments where creativity is amplified. And mm-hmm. so I, I think you can create a place, of particularly how you manage the conversation with other people and how you, will you create a yes and environment where people, where people aren't shooting down each other's ideas, who are saying, yes, that's a good idea. And they're not just listening, but they're also writing them down. We have a place at JPL called Left Field, which is a room, which is just a huge wall, whiteboard, and lots and lots of pens and, and you can draw the, uh, with whiteboard pens and sticky notes and things like that. You throw ideas up there and, and people, you put yourself in those situations, you can create places and ideas where you enable the, the possibilities. And this and that's one thing, you're having an environment. But the second thing, you do need to have an appreciation of that. Although process is, is important, you know, following the rules and patterns for making things happen. But ultimately, what is all of the stuff that we do is done by human beings, not institutions, not big uh, snake cup people, uh, but snake cup people, snake cup people, but 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 the people who are the people who are we put these labels on ourselves, but we're really just a bunch of people who are trying to figure out how to organize ourselves without bumping in elbows too much to allow ourselves to to create and make something and contribute something. But you have to have that hold that in your mind's eye. If you're a manager, a lot of people who are just, who look down are so focused on PowerPoint or the bullets <laughs> or, or the process, they forget to stop and listen and, and just sense the importance of sticking out of the box, turning things upside down, not being afraid to look at things that look wrong. When you mentioned the, 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 the sky cream interview that, well, who in, in their right mind would put the rocket above your lander? <laughs> no one. No I mean, one. why would you do that? No one no would one. do that. But, but no yet on the other hand, we did that on Pathfinder. We put a propulsion system, a solid rocket motors above our airbag lander. And we said, well, what if that, what if that, that thing was actually not so funky and solid rockets that are just 
on off switches, but let's let's see if we can actually put something that controls it and does a nicer job of controlling it and lending it down. And then, so does it actually play the Benny Hill theme song while that's going on, or is <laughs> yes, that just in my head? Okay, no, we, we it's 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 one of the songs we play you know, to wake up the engineers in the morning. <laughs> that's Added just inspiration, no doubt. Yes, Andy, you former. Uh, ex-software engineer, obviously. I'm a, a former ex-software yeah. engineer. Does that former mean I'm ex. back to... <laughs> it's just ex-software. Um, ex but, uh, I mean, it's already come up when you wrote The Martian. It became, to a degree anyway, a collaborative effort. You were benefiting from the, the thoughts, if not I had the a lot of fact-checkers, basically. Yeah, 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 right. That was great. I mean, what do you t what do you tell people when, when they come up to you and say, where do you come up with these ideas? How are you so creative? Yeah, I get asked that, and I don't know what to answer. Usually, I it starts off with me thinking, most of my stories start off with me thinking about some cool, fancy thing. I don't know how to put it. It'd be like, like The Martian started off not with me thinking about, like, oh, I'm going to write a story. I was just thinking about, how how can I update the Mars Direct profile to take advantage of our more advanced technology that we now have? Like so, I I say I want to I want to design a, a crude mission to Mars, C R E W E D, not C R U D E. <laughs> I, I want to you know a human to Mars mission. I want to design that. How do we make it work? And you know when I was working all the, all that, I was like, well, one nice thing about it being ion propulsion is you can abort any time. There's not just hmm. uh, well not any time, but you can. There are lots of abort options. You don't have to wait until the next home in ellipse. That's kind of nice. Then I was like, okay, well, let's say they left and in an emergency and someone was still there, you know, that, that's where first I set up a system that I think is cool. Then comes the story. Same with uh, Project Hail Mary. I was like, I want to think about what we could do with a mass conversion fuel. Like, what could we do with a um, with engines that have a specific impulse of C, sorry, an effective exhaust velocity of C, a specific impulse of C over G? Specific impulse is stupid. Why do you people use it? You're a scientist, for Christ's sake. Hey, no. I'm not you a fan. You're crazy. But yeah. no. Effective yeah. exhaust velocity. It's, it's Yeah, velocity. I know, history. Yeah. yeah. Well, all these people are always like, ah, oh, metric, metric, metric. Have you ever talked to astronomers about some of the stupid stuff they do? That's yeah. like pico arc seconds per fortnight or something. Yeah. <laughs> stupid crap. Like how many, how many parsecs can you make that run in? Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Matt. <laughs> the Kessel I, I, Run I love Star Wars. requires the you Kessel to go run. from, you know, two different locations and there's a black hole directly between them. So ah. the shorter a distance you can make that run in, it means the closer you got to the black hole. And so, so the it does make risk sense. you were taking. So it's actually two black holes orbiting each other. And <laughs> the only way the only way to do the Kessel run in under 12 parsecs is to literally go between the two black holes. That would work. Such that you don't touch either event horizon. It's extremely rare. It's extremely difficult, extremely brave. And only the very best ships like the Falcon can do it. So don't be dissing. <laughs> And a pilot who, you know, probably has such guts that he would have shot first. Yeah, so. definitely shot first. <laughs> Rob, I, here's a quote that I found from you. I always recommend that you should not worry about career advancement too soon. Spend a decade in your career doing real work. Build something. Use your hands. Test it. Learn from your mistakes. 
Put yourself out there on the edge where you will force your eyes wide open. Do you stand by that crazy advice? Oh, yeah. And then I want to get Andy's uh, uh, absolutely. About it. No, I think I think that's probably just something he says in performance reviews. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I think you're going to need to stay in your current position for another ten years. Ten years, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> keep at it. That's good. I, yeah. I'm going to try that approach. Thank you. <laughs> Still good advice. I still, I feel, and I think particularly if it's a situation where you learn about trial and error and making mistakes. I mean, we we do have. I think there's. I I I fear that which there's is a why path. that he has to stay in the position for ten years. a little long, a little bit longer, maybe not ten years, but certainly enough time <laughs> to give yourself uh, a chance to to try things out and try it and fail, pick yourself back up again. We're, we're seeing more and more rarefied engineers who are have got all A's their whole life. They've never put themselves in a situation where they could fail because the competition is so intense these days in college. It's really mm. amazing. It's very expensive. And so they, they put a lot of effort. And so as a consequence, they're not used to failing and failure is kind of a scary proposition. Even the word has negative connotations. Yet ironically, failure is actually a, a knowledge increase of and if you do an experiment and it doesn't, it doesn't work. That's some of the, some of the best experiments, the ones that fail. And it's about gaining knowledge and understanding of the work universe. One of my favorite pieces of life advice that I've ever received wasn't intended to be life advice. It was simply a comment in the rule book of a role-playing game that I was playing. (laughs) (laughs) And it wasn't intended to be life experience or anything. It was just a sidebar comment in a, a rule book. But basically in that game, you know, it's a role-playing game. In that game, if you try something, even if you don't succeed, you get some XP in that field, right? As a side note, it said, experience is what you get when you don't get what you want. And I'm oh. like, I like that. <laughs> and that's that's true. Words to live by. <laughs> that is yeah. excellent. My biggest challenge is sometimes we, we, what we fail to do is experience is probably for the things that just barely work. If they work, oh, we're done. We have to start thinking about it. But if they we're fail, done. oh, yeah. we look into it. We stare at every little possibility, and uh, so we're not good at that either. But but I think you're right. It's about it's, it's about the stumbling along the way. That's where the journey is. I told you that there's one more thing I want to do with you, a hypothetical that I want to throw at you. Are you okay for time? I'm fine. Yeah. Thank you. Call it the 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 rendezvous with Rama scenario. With apologies. Oh, to I Sir love Arthur that. Clark. Okay. I love astronomers that. Yeah. astronomers have detected a large object entering the solar system from parts unknown, definitely from the outside. Let's say it's a a kilometer or maybe, you know, like a mile across, so big. It's assumed to be a comet right up until it changes course, decelerates, and goes into orbit between Earth and Mars. What should humanity do? Where do we go with this? Andy, I'll start with you. Okay, first off, don't let the Hawaiians name it because I can't pronounce (laughs) Oumuamua. That was bullshit. (laughs) <laughs> that, I'm sorry. There are lots of Hawaiian words that are wow. pronounceable by other people in the world. Yeah. So that's number one. Okay. I can help you. Amua, 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 amua. Just say it. Omuamua. Omuamua. Maki, maki, maki. Yeah. Maki, maki. Yeah. Uh, I think it's pretty obvious that the first thing we would do is send a probe to go look at it. So someone would be on the phone with Rob that Rob day. says no, but keep going. No, no, no. Okay. No, Rob first says thing- no. No, Rob says no. Well, the first thing we telescopes. do telescopes. No, 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 no. Well, the first thing to do is to go and see about raising some money in the next fiscal year. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, that that's that's all that's all Rob stuff. 
No, well, I'm The joking. first thing that would yeah. happen is someone's on the phone with Rob saying, so, don't know if you read about this thing that changed course and established the station keeping going. I guess I would also see, like, what human-controlled uh, measuring object is physically closest to it? Like, if it's in, if it's taken a station between Earth and Mars, some of the Mars satellites might be good for getting a look at it, depending on where it is in that orbit. Like, yeah. it could be much, much closer to Mars than it is to Earth, you know? Yeah. We did that We did that fairly recently, yeah. I loved it during uh, uh, Curiosity's landing, presumably uh, Percy's too, but uh, I remember during Curiosity's landing, they used the, um, like... Maybe uh, MRO, to, maybe. We did. Yeah, MRO. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I just remember that was cool because there was a certain window during which MRO was going to be within line of sight of the <laughs> of the of the landing ellipse, and it right. was like we don't know if we're going to find this out. You know, it might land, and it might be after MRO has like gone beyond the horizon, so we might have to wait until another set. But I just think it's really cool how we'll just go like, oh, hold on, <laughs> we'll reuse those satellites and redirect them and stuff. Yeah, yeah. In the Martian, they're... of course, they pointed every satellite at. Our, yeah. We do it, and we, we create. That's great. We actually were able to to uh, orchestrate. Where we work together with Europeans, you know, other, other agencies all, all all over the place to be able to coordinate. Oh, sure, yeah. It's, it's, it's really great. Of course, you, the nice thing about it, you know when you're in a land to the to the minute, uh, or yeah, less. That you, helps year, years in advance, <laughs> so you can. But no, but I, that's, which is which is challenging is, is you have to kind of steal these resources. You need the uh, um, the the CAC telescopes or the Gemini or any other the other spacecraft. Uh, we, we'll probably end up using a green bank for radar observations. Bounce radar off of it, see what it's what it might look like. From, my from my a, hypothetical uh, object, yeah, my yeah my yeah your object. Type object. And so, yeah, yeah, so right. so you're so you, so you'd start with just but these all these other observations and you know look look at the infrared, look at the signatures, you know. Try to try to characterize it and have big conferences on it. I'm sharing notes. I mean, meanwhile, people are says, "Well, let's what are we going to do about a uh, either a probably probably initially be a flyby mission, right? Because it's easier to get there quicker. It takes a lot a little more logistics to make a spacecraft that can actually stop and visit. But, but I think I, I you be, learn a lot from a flyby. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah that that would be awesome. <laughs> get the hell out of there. Oh, every now and then I get. You know, either emails or what's even better is when I'm at events and people, at, you know, conspiracy theorists are sometimes there asking questions. They'll ask questions about, oh, you know, it's pretty clear that there there is life on Mars and NASA suppressing that and all that stuff like that. And I'm like, do you have any idea what would happen to NASA's budget if we could show that there was life on Mars? Yeah, it's like add two zeros onto the end of it. I mean, Jesus, there is no reason NASA would keep that quiet. I know yeah. exactly. So true. true. <laughs> yeah, so true. Not, not to mention, we're terrible at keeping secrets. I just tell you. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. That's the other thing is like the complexity of faking a moon landing. It's easier yeah. just to land on the moon. It is. It's much easier. <laughs> so neither of you guys. Back to my scenario. Neither of you yeah. would say if people said. No, no, this is the, obviously technology that's far advanced beyond us. Uh, we should just turn out all the lights and hope they go away. <laughs> that's, that, that's, no. that's not how we roll. That's not yeah, how yeah. humans are. <laughs> that's, and, and it's not just me and Rob. It's like humanity is curious. This is, one of my, this is one of my talking points I say a lot in when I'm giving talks is humanity is curious and we have a desire to see what's on the other side of that hill, right? Yeah. And Absolutely. that is not just a quirk of the human mind. I there's a lot of um, there's a lot of people, um, evolutionary theorists, who believe that 
that that's a survival mechanism of humans. Just last week, John Grunsfeld, former chief scientist of NASA, five-time astronaut, he was talking about exactly the same thing, Andy, and he believes it. Yeah, it's just our desire to spread out and just go live anywhere we possibly can. The, the very the very instinct that makes us kind of want to go live on the moon and live on Mars and stuff like that, 50,000 years ago are the ones who said, like, maybe we can live in that godforsaken desert. I think I found a place that has, like, salt water. Let's give it a whirl. And, and what that does is it spreads your species out over a large area so no local ecological collapse can kill you off. In fact, it was about 75 thousand years ago or something like that there was this monumental super volcano went off and killed lots of life on earth due to an extended winter and they think that the entire human population dwindled down to about ten thousand people during that and then and then built back up and if we hadn't been all spread out all over the world that might have been it for us yeah you know so if your entire species is in one floodplain you're you, your species might not last long. So I just think it's neat that this survival instinct that maybe helped make us the dominant species on this planet is also what is driving us. You know, we have this this need, <laughs> this built-in psychological need. Yeah. Rob, resonates? Oh, yeah, it does. I mean, I, I, I think there's still a, kind of an energy barrier problem in terms of, you know, going, for example... To extending that to other planets, you know, I I think you're absolutely right in terms of you know curiosity. Let's find out. Well, if they could do it, why can't we do it? So it really should open up all sorts of wonderful, like, huh, maybe this isn't uh, this maybe this isn't as impossible as we thought it was. Inner solar system exploration. So let's find out how they did it. Let's learn. I believe there's a lot of technological work. A lot of, for example, people to live comfortably on Mars. It's really hard. I mean, it's it, it's just <laughs> even though it's even though it's not. It's kind of against the law to do this, international law. But you know, if they didn't have those laws, you know, we wouldn't see people flocking to build condos down South Pole. I just tell you, it's not that friendly. Oh. Well, there's no economic motive. There's no economic motive, and 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 it's very it's very difficult. It takes a lot of infrastructure support. You know, something no trees, no you can't start to grow crops. You know, same thing with Mars. And so there needs to be something to get us over that energy energy barrier. You know, it's to, to motivational barrier as well as technological barrier to try to make sure that it is comfortable as Mark Watney knew. It was kind of like, you know, <laughs> you can only go so far on potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> my, uh, well, my explanation for that in Artemis, where they build a city on the moon, is the industry was tourism. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah talking earlier just about how curious we are, of course we'd want to go take a look at it. I, I, yeah. can't, uh, I cannot imagine, <laughs> there's just no scenario where people would be like, that's clear evidence of some sort of alien intelligence. Ah, eh, forget it. No, that's, that's just not how As for the energy thing, uh, transportation is always the biggest problem. Like, I, I often tell people, imagine there was just a magic gate, like two meters across, that led, like, directly to the moon. Call it a stargate. A stargate, sure. There's a stargate that leads from here to the moon, or even Mars, let's say. There's a stargate that leads from here to Mars. And we keep our end of it in a in a you know vacuum sealed room so that it has a Mars atmosphere. Don't worry about the air. Okay. So in other words, it takes it takes functionally zero energy to go to Mars. I think there'd be people living there. I think honestly, if Antarctica what if if there was a gate that led directly from Cleveland to Antarctica, 
there be people living in Antarctica. It's the distance and logistical complexity of getting there yeah. that, that prevents people from wanting to live there, not just the lack of resources. Also, if you lived in Cleveland, you'd probably prefer Antarctica. You might. No. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> but, folks. But, but Mars and Antarctica share one thing. Uh, unlike previous uh, efforts for humans to, to migrate on the planet, they were able to find in situ resources that allow them to survive without having a logistical supply chain, right? What you're suggesting as well, a logistical supply chain through a Stargate would do the job. And that, and you can yeah. just start, that, that, that means somebody out back on our end has to keep feeding these people. Like, Well, for a while, I would argue Mars has all the in situ uh, resources yeah. that you need. It's just harder to make use of them. Right. It has it has carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen. If you have that, oh, and plenty of rocks to make to make hull out of stone soup. But energy is the, another one that's really that's really challenging on Mars. As we as what's what we struggle with. Oh well, I've always assumed that colonization would be um uh, power, would be nuclear powered because this entire city on Mars is running a little low on energy. Okay, send another five kilograms of enriched uranium. Yeah. <laughs> That'll last them another twenty years, and we're know? and we're getting there. I mean, that's that's uh, something that uh, we may just see nuclear yeah. power again in space before long. You have been amazingly generous with both your time and your creativity. I'm going to throw just one more at you that didn't occur to me until just like moments before we started this thing. Uh, and and what makes me really want to bring it up now, Rob, is that you talked about our existence as physical beings. That's the phrase you used about an hour ago. So what if this best of all universes is a simulation? Uh, what if we're just zeros and ones in, in some vast cosmic uh, computer or mind? Um, you know, I like the response from Coach Beard in Ted Lasso, uh, which you may have caught in the episode that focused on Coach Beard. He said, if this is all indeed a simulation, which everything in my experience suggests that it is, then all we can do is tip our caps to the rascal pulling the strings. <laughs> I'd only add, uh, thanks for the ride. <laughs> Rob? I, I have this middle ground view. You know, if, if people say, well, if you're living a simulation, that obviously there is some person who created the simulation, who wrote the, you know, like Andy Weir, right? No, I wrote all the software. <laughs> and and who, 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 are, who are watching the simulation progress. But it's possible that we are actually, are bits, you know, quantum bits, qubits, um, I think it's quite possible that we are, we talk about an information theoretic view of the reality, um, it from bit, you've heard that expression. I do believe, I do believe that, uh, that one hypothesis for, for different universe um, is that this, this information resides on a hologram of our universe. I, so I think, I don't know, we don't think that's necessarily true for our, our expanding universe, but, but the ideas are, I think are, are correct in the sense I do think that we are, what we see and the world around us is, in some sense, constructed from from bits of information that are interacting mm. with each other in a different place. Now, I, is that a simulation? No, it's it's a duality. It's a, it's 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 our, that our universe lives in a different way. But it, there's a lot of doubt. I think we are bits of information, and we build up. My mind is blown. Uh, Andy, are we all just characters in your next story? <laughs> well, definitely not my next story. But I've never I've never been that excited about the whole, you know, are we living in a simulation argument? Because to me, it becomes irrelevant. It becomes really more a matter of religion. It's like, OK, we are living. We exist 
in a system that has a set of laws and rules that we have no choice but to follow, physics. Is it a simulation of physics? Is it something like that? Is there another universe outside of ours that has completely different physics and we are running in some form of a computer within there? It doesn't matter because we are confined to this one. These are the rules we have to play by. If you're playing chess, you don't get to bring in a checker. You know, it's like <laughs> the, these are the rules that we live by. And if there is indeed some way to, quote unquote, escape the simulation, then that's still the rules that we live by. Then then maybe there's a leak, a memory leak or something like that. But in the end, it doesn't matter. It means that if we're in a simulation, all that means is that some entity created our reality. And that is what people call God. This is not a new concept. It's like, hey, what if the universe isn't just random, but it was indeed created by some higher power who was watching? Yeah. Yeah. So the whole simulation thing, it's like people are just starting to invent religion. Try to catch up. This is like, you know, 100,000 <laughs> years old, folks. This is humans tend to just repeat ourselves a lot. And so I think the whole, ooh, are we living in a simulation is just a new way for people to invent religion without admitting it. <laughs> Gentlemen, simulation or not, I am thrilled to share this universe with the two of you. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for being, as far as I know, the last two external guests that uh, may appear at, while I am the host of Planetary Radio. But I sure hope it's not the last conversation that uh, that we get to share. Uh, it has just been delightful. Thank you very much. I, I don't know. Do you want to say goodbye to each other? I'm sure I'll see Rob again sometime, but goodbye for now, Rob. Good to see you, Andy. Really, I just want to say, Matt, goodbye to you in this in this yeah. role. You've been just fantastic. I love your show. I've been on it more times than I can count, and uh, I've always had a fantastic time. I'm going to say the same thing. Yeah, and then thank you. It sounds like something you'd say to a military man, but thank you to you. Thank you for your service. You know? oh, thank you, man. It's true. I mean, you, you really have performed a, a, a major. I mean, this is what's what's important about what you do is that I mean, you've done over the years is that you bring. You inspire people with our reality of our world and our universe. And I think that's something that is is something that we often feel, I feel short of because people are often living in a kind of a quasi world of their own. And I think that, I think getting out there and looking and seeing the universe and looking and seeing how we relate to it is what you're good at and what you're best at yeah. and what you've done so successfully. You're a great communicator, Matt, and what you do is important, and you've done a lot of good for the world. I know you're not used to having the microphone turned around and pointed at you, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's worth uh, it's worth saying after 20 years, really maybe true. someone ought to mention this to you. All right, Absolutely. well, listen, you two, takes one to know one. So, <laughs> thank you, <laughs> thank you so much, guys. Thank Take what care. What a treat, treat. Thank you so much. See you both. Hey, guess what? It's time for what's up on Planetary Radio. The chief scientist of the Planetary Society is here with us again, Dr. Bruce Betts. I have your gift. Here it is in the white styrofoam box, non-recyclable box. Is there dry ice involved? Are there whole No, no, no dry ice required. Uh, you can use it for dry ice if you like later, but I've already said too much. Okay, you'll have, all right. You'll have to stick around to the end. This time I will. <laughs> and the sooner you tell us about the night sky, well... Oh, yeah. There are all sorts of planets in the evening sky. It's uh, There's the party we've been having with uh, Mars rising in the east, a little 
It'll already be up now uh, around sunset in the east, looking bright red, but dimming as it gets farther away from Earth. And then uh, Jupiter high in the sky, looking very, very bright. Saturn moving over towards the west as the weeks go on, looking yellowish. In a surprise guest appearance, we'll have Mercury through the end of the month. You're going to need a low view to the western horizon right shortly after sunset. And and get excited because Venus is coming up underneath it in even clearer view to the horizon to pick it up so far. It's super bright below Mercury, and they will Mercury will go away. Venus will join us for the next few months. Stay tuned for more Mercury fun. Mercury mirth. Mirthery. <laughs> this week in space history, big week, 60 years ago, Mariner 2 became the first planet flyby, successful planet flyby when it flew by Venus. Ten years later, Gene Cernan was taking the last steps on the moon by human. I mean, I, I'm not counting Wallace and Gromit because it's different. Cheese, <laughs> Gromit. <laughs> Winsley Dale. All right, you ready? Go. Random Matt Kaplan fact. Uh, that was unexpected. I ask forgiveness from the uh, the public. We've got uh, three episodes left, Matt, yeah. with you as host guy. And so I'm introducing Random Matt Kaplan fact as a replacement segment for the next three weeks. Matt Kaplan's radio broadcasting career began in elementary school when his parents gave him a Remco AM radio transmitter as a kid. He could broadcast all of 50 feet. The world would never be the same. <laughs> My poor brothers who were forced to be the audience. Well, I love it. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Wait till we get to next week and the week after. <laughs> uh -oh. Let us move on to the trivia contest, shall we? Because that gets me one step closer to my glorious gift. As of Planetary Radio's 20th birthday, which occurred just uh, a couple weeks ago, about how old would Planetary Radio be in Mercury years? How'd we do, Matt? I will simply let our poet laureate, Dave Fairchild in Kansas, respond. I think you'll like this. We've dialed in so long ago to planetary radio, where all have heard young Matt give word and Bruce with random facts absurd. I tell <laughs> you, sir, we all concur that you're our spatial messenger. Get it? Messenger? Ah, uh, messenger. And 83 is what you'd be if you had lived on Mercury. Indeed, 83 years young. Thank you, Dave. Uh, another great job. Uh, here's our winner, Reese Naylor, first-time winner in uh, Ontario, Canada. Yep, just about to turn 83. He adds, congratulations, Matt, on a fantastic run. Thank you for all your work. You are very welcome, Reese, and we are going to send you a Planetary Society kick asteroid. Rubber asteroid. I like that. Uh, Patrick Lusky in California said, you know, 83 is the new 20. You look great. <laughs> Jerry Robinette in Ohio is just one of those who shared that out at Pluto, 20 Earth years is a toddling 0.08 years. He says, I guess it's true what they say. Location, location, location. Patricia Bennett in Australia, her very first entry, and she gave us some verse. 
At 88 days, it's spinning around with 1,000 episodes. It's 20 years bound. But if I were a Mercurian, I'd be 83. Maybe as old as Matt. He he. <laughs> okay, first and last, maybe Patricia, but no. I'm very entertained. Thank you. <laughs> yes, the trivia next trivia contest will involve Matt's age. Go, go ahead, Matt. A somewhat longer poem, but we'll go ahead and do it all from Gene Lewin in Washington. Comparing solar orbits, a ratio can be extracted. Between Earth and planet Mercury, a similitude is exacted. Solely measuring it in years, 20 here, there, 83. But if we consider the amount of days, I wonder what that would be. Each Earth here has 365. Four leap years add four days more. Multiply by 20 and you get 7,304. But Mercury on its axis spins less than two days in its year. So 83 orbits round the Sun, 124.5, my dear. Wow. That is quite a piece of work. Uh, how about for this time? I realized something, Matt. This trivia question will be answered during your final show as host. That's very true. So I'm going to break all the rules and ask, oh gosh, I wish I had a good joke right now. To the audience out there, what has Matt Kaplan meant to you? Oh no, it'll be great. You'll be really uncomfortable. No. You'll be embarrassed. Yes. I've been getting that for months, ever since we made the announcement. People have been sharing these beautiful, beautiful thoughts. 20 years and now you're rejecting my, my question? I I should have, I should have brought Sarah in on this so we could uh, grab the emails. All right, how about um, oh here? How about this? Matt's retiring as planetary radio host. I think that means I will never talk to him again. But I'm not sure. But that <laughs> you wish. Separate issue. So now we're we're changing. The official question is as follows: After Matt retires as planetary radio host, what job would you like him to do? What do you envision him doing? I like that. It can be serious, it can be funny, it can be... Profound. Profound. Yeah, or just not profound, so something I would write. Okay, good. We have reached that point. Here's the box, <laughs> making noise. <laughs> so I can see us. it on my little video. Okay. I'm going to open it up. There we are. Okay. Oh my gosh. It, oh my gosh. It is a coffee mug, and I'll hold it up to the camera. <gasps> a planetary radio emblazoned coffee mug. Oh, yes, but wait, there's more. No way. Oh, my gosh, there's a picture of Matt and Bruce recording at the beach. Yay! That's so cool. Thank you, Matt. Isn't it nice? It really, it uh, just jumped out when I needed to pick a photo. I, I'd forgotten all about this, but we were on Coronado Beach recording What's Up. It's just a great photo. Oh, that's cool. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for going along on our a memory-filled journey over the, this time period uh, that's a little less space and a little more, well, Matt Kaplan. Ew. Sounds gross when I say it out loud. Say goodnight, Bruce. Goodnight, Bruce. <laughs> We've only done that like a hundred times over the past 20 years. That's less than 10% of the shows, because we've really done, I think, 1,106 shows. Of course, that includes Space Policy Edition monthly programs. So, But uh, yeah, we're well over 1,000. All right, everybody, go out there, look out for the night sky, and think about the squirrel outside my window that's eating a nut. Thank you, and good night. It's very cute. That was the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, Bruce Betts, who is now taking a photo of the squirrel eating a nut outside his window uh, so that he can remember this moment with the squirrel forever. He joins us every week here on What's Up. 
Want to see Bruce's truly cute squirrel? It's on the episode page at planetary.org radio. Next week, the best of Planetary Radio, which is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by our Space Nut members. Crack their secret at planetary.org join. Mark Hilverda and Ray Paletta are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. Ad Astra.